Do you know who it is tough to not like? Who is it tough to not like? It's tough to not like the person who helped you out when you didn't expect it. It's tough to not like the person who helped you out when you thought you were just stuck in your own trouble. When you thought that there was just no one who would help you out of the mess that you find yourself in. It is tough to not like the person who went out of their way to help you out of a jam and didn't ask for anything in return. It's the person who saw that you were in trouble and they not only recognized what needed to be done, but they actually stepped up and did it. Because when someone does that for you, you never forget an experience like that. I've had that experience a few times in my life. Let me tell you about one of them. In my freshman year in college, back when dinosaurs still roamed the earth, my uncle Spencer one morning, remember Spencer? He's spoken to us once in a while. Once in a while, if you've been here for a few years, you've met him. He's my dad's youngest brother, but he's my age. We grew up together. So Spencer and I and our friend Dave, Dave is now a circuit judge in Florida, a few counties north of here. We decided that we wanted to drive over from Gainesville to the east coast of Florida. Gainesville sort of in north central Florida. We wanted to go surfing one morning. So we got into Spencer's Plymouth Trail Duster. I don't know if you remember this car. It was a large SUV. Now they have compact SUVs more than anything, but it was a large SUV. My grandfather, Spencer's dad, bought it for him a few months earlier. Spencer was always able to get his dad to buy him stuff. It was my grandfather, but he had a child that was his grandson's age, and so it was a little bit spoiled. And Spence, if you're watching, you know it's true. So anyway, my grandfather just bought him this trail duster few months earlier anyway, we headed out to Crescent Beach, which is about 90, 90 minutes away from Gainesville. We arrived there without incident, without event. We, we got out there and surfed for just a few hours, but the waves weren't very big that day, and we were still pretty fresh, and we were still kind of looking for something to do. And since he was driving a brand new four-wheel drive truck, Spencer suggested that we try it out. Try it out. You know what that means when you have a four-wheel drive truck. Well, in those days, at least, it meant a little off-roading. So Dave and I looked at each other, and we figured, it's not our truck. Sure, why not? And with that, Spencer pulls off the road and immediately just starts driving into the brush. And the further we got away from the highway, the more wooded and swampy things got. Before too long, we found a very remote, muddy spot, and we sort of dropped in. We, we got off whatever trail we were on and just sunk down into the, into the mud. And after a while of mudding around out there, we saw another truck pull up, a Jeep pull up. And the driver called out to us, and we said, what do you want? Because we were, of course, trespassing, and we were hoping that he wouldn't tell us to stop trespassing. So he asked us what we were up to, and one of us lied. And I really can't remember which one of us it was. And I did, certainly, if it was the judge, I don't want to pin it on him. He's a really good judge. I don't remember which one of us uh, said it. But one of us said, oh, we lost our dog, and we're out here trying to find our lost dog. Well, it's it fairly clear that the guy didn't believe us. But he also didn't tell us to leave. 
Instead, he just kind of, you know, rolled his eyes and said, all right, you know, have a nice day. And I'm sure he was thinking, I hope these knucklehead city boys don't get hurt out here. And after we left, we were driving around, got a little deeper. We noticed some challenging terrain a few hundred yards away, and we all looked at each other and did what young men are wont to do. We were like, yeah, let's do it, you know. And with that, we went into the trees, and we went into the mud, and it was awesome, and mud's flying everywhere, and water's going everywhere, and the truck's getting dirty. And then, wham, we drove over this huge boulder, and we came down really hard in this deep, mud-filled pit. We tried to get out, and we kept on sinking deeper in. Have you ever heard of the, uh, the first rule of holes? When you find yourself in a hole, stop digging. We did not follow the rule. We violated the first rule of holes. We kept getting deeper and deeper and deeper. Every time we hit the gas, the wheels would spin. We'd sink further into the mud. And then the water started coming up, and it starts seeping in under the doors to the trail duster. Brand new trail duster filling with this disgusting swamp water and mud and moss and muck. The more we tried to drive out, the deeper and deeper we got until we realized we were just stuck. There was just no way we were getting out. And by this point, the sun was beginning to set. It's almost dusk. Mosquitoes, of course. I mean, I always tell people just because we live here doesn't mean the mosquitoes don't still think this is a swamp. So they started coming in. And we jumped out of the truck, and we're trying to use all of our brains to figure out how to get out, and there was just nothing. We just stood there, and we're staring silently at it. Now, none of us were believers at the time, just three Jewish kids off-roading. Interestingly, we're all believers today, which is really bizarre. So there were no prayers going up. We just had this empty feeling in our stomach, this hollow feeling, wondering if we survived, we were going to explain this story, particularly to my grandfather. So we sat down in the dirt, and no one wanted to say anything unless somebody had a great solution, which nobody had, and we were just doomed. I thought I would die out there, and after a long while, we heard a car coming. We didn't know whether to shout out for help or to hide away, so we weren't arrested. So we just did nothing. And before long, we saw headlights, and we waited. You know, that anticipation, that nervous anticipation, what's going to happen to me here? We felt that. And up drove the same guy that we lied to about the dog. And he opened his window, and he said, couldn't find your dog, huh? And we laughed, but it wasn't funny. And then he jumped out of his Jeep, and he put his fingers together, and he whistled, as some people can. I can't. My wife can. I can't. But he whistled, and behind him there were not just one, but two tow trucks. And the guy says, step aside, guys. And he grabbed the steel cable from the winch on the front of his Jeep, and he hooked it to the bumper of our truck. And then the first tow truck, which was about 30 yards back on dry land, hooked on to the Jeep. And then the second tow truck, which is about 30 yards back further on a gravel road, hooked on to the other tow truck. And in turn, they retracted their cables. First the Jeep, and then the tow truck, and the other tow truck. And before you knew it, slowly our SUV started to come up out of the mud. And we all felt like crying. But of course, we weren't crying because we already felt bad enough, being the idiots that got themselves stuck on this guy's property. 
And once we were safely on the road, the boys just wished us well. We, we did offer them money. We offered them all the money we had on us. We were three college freshmen in a truck. So maybe it was $4, but I don't know. It was nothing. They laughed. They politely turned us down. They waved to us as we got back on the road and head back to Gainesville. Now, it has been a number of years since that day. But I remember that day as if it was yesterday. Those guys saved us. They saved us. And they asked for nothing in return. My grandfather was never the wiser. And not only did they ask for nothing in return, but they took a risk for us. They risked their own safety. It's, it's dangerous pulling you know, a few thousand pound car out of a pit. And they risked their own stuff. I mean, you can mess up your car doing that. But they, they risked it for us, three strangers who needed help. Welcome to part four of Investigating Jesus. How we know and why we follow. Let me pray for you again. And then we'll get going. God, thank you for our time together. Thank you for your word, which guides our steps, which governs our lives, which enlightens our way. Father, as we study your word, allow it to sink deeply into us and motivate us to draw closer to you. We love you, we praise you, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, as you know, we are in this series. Uh, This is our fourth week. We are digging into Luke's gospel, and we're doing this in order to understand the ways in which Luke's recounting of the life of Jesus is a reliable report of factual foundation for the things that we know and believe about Jesus. Now remember that we've learned so far that Luke was a first century doctor. He was a physician, and he personally knew all the characters, all the people in the story of Jesus. And he traveled all over the Mediterranean rim, the Mediterranean area, with the apostle Paul. Luke was Paul's traveling companion. He was his personal physician. And we saw in Luke I mean, back in Luke, but in week one, we saw how Luke intended for this gospel to be something specific. He intended for this gospel to be a precise and accurate documenting of the life of Jesus. Luke told the story of Jesus because the story of Jesus needed to be told. And Luke told us that his retelling of the story was one of many tellings of the story of Jesus. Luke's first century document, which remember is the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts. It was just one big document, Luke being about Jesus and his life and death and resurrection and the, God, and the story of Acts being the story of the spread of the new community of believers. That would be included one day in a few hundred years in the compilation of documents that make up what we call the Bible. All right, so remember, this is one of the Gospels, one of the first four books in our New Testament. Now, Luke started off by detailing Jesus' birth, and then he introduced us to sort of the warm-up act to Jesus' ministry on earth, John the Baptist. And he gave us a summary of Jesus' entire life mission. Luke quoted Jesus' saying, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. That is why I was sent. We noted last week that if the version of faith in Jesus that you were raised in or the version of faith in Jesus that you hold right now does not strike you as good news, it is probably not the right version. It is probably not Jesus' version of the story of God's salvation. And as for the kingdom of God, Luke explained that Jesus 
presented it as representing the rule and the reign of God. When Jesus walked or talked about God's rule, either on earth or over the life of a person, it was a relational and inviting rule. It was a rule without borders. It was as if everybody was invited in and everybody was included in the call to come to God through Jesus. Luke showed us that God doesn't recognize. He showed us that God has little patience for the artificial stratification of the human race. That every single culture and every single generation tries to impose on the human race. God's not about that stratification, that division of people within the human race. Under God's economy, everyone is endowed with inherent worth. And everyone has value because everyone has been made in God's image. And the caste system or the caste type system that permeated the ancient world, the system of who's good and who's bad, who's better and who's worse, that permeates parts of the world today, Jesus had no patience for that because his Father in heaven had no patience for that either. Jesus taught that everyone should be treated with dignity and worth, which, though it's self-evident to us, it was not self-evident by any means in the ancient world until Jesus came along. And wherever Jesus' followers embraced and defended and modeled Jesus' new covenant to love others as God through Christ has loved us, wherever Jesus did that, and model, and wherever Jesus' followers modeled that, people flourished, and their world became a better place. And all the caste systems, and all the differentiating types of people, that all began to fall away. There is neither Jew nor Greek, nor male nor female. All are one in Christ Jesus. Now, along those lines, today we're going to look at a time when Jesus spoke directly about this topic. In today's story... We'll see how Jesus went out of his way to convey this new and very unique at the time vision for the world. And it was very important. And that's why Luke included it in his gospel. It was another Jesus story that simply had to be told. So, if you have a Bible with you, you're welcome now to turn to Luke chapter 10. Remember, I always put this... The verses up on the screen, I use the New International Version for this. You can look at any version you like. But Luke chapter 10, we'll start off in verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So there's a few things to see here. First, an expert in the law is also known as, anybody? A lawyer. Okay? Lawyers have had their fingers in every pie for a very long time. We are always at the center of a controversy. Anyway, this lawyer came along and he was asking what we would call a loaded question. See, he wasn't asking a question just to get the knowledge of the answer on the subject. He was testing Jesus. He was testing Jesus and he was trying to make Jesus make a mistake, to trying to trip him up. So he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, let's understand the question he asked first. 
We need to understand that he wasn't talking about eternal life in the way that we, as followers of Jesus today, understand it. We, as followers of Jesus today, know that eternal life means living forever connected to the God of the universe here on earth and after our time here on earth is over. We understand that as followers of Jesus, eternal life is there for us once we get, once we understand, once we accept the fact that we are all born sinners. We are all born in sin. If you don't believe it, please spend a week reading the news on the internet. That's all you need. Probably a day will do it for you, but maybe a week will be better to convince you. We are all sinners. Every single one of us, we're a messed up bunch, and we understand as followers of Jesus that we're all born into it, and we're all incapable of behaving our way out of it. We're all incapable of behaving our way into God's good favor, and therefore we need help. We need someone to save us from all of that sin, from our sin. We need someone to save us to our God. And now we understand that God so loved the world that he sent Jesus, God the Son, conceived differently than we were conceived, conceived without sin, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of a virgin. Jesus came and lived a complete and perfect and sinless life so that he was the perfect sacrifice to pay for all of our sins. And that's what happened on the cross when Jesus was crucified. God put all of our sins on Jesus. He was punished for them. He died paying the penalty for our sin. He was put into a tomb, but because he had no sin himself, death couldn't hold him. He came back from the dead, was seen by hundreds of witnesses, and ascended to heaven, promising to return one day and usher in God's kingdom here on earth. And when we've turned from our sin and given our life to Jesus, to God's one and only Son, whom God sent to make a way for us to be reconciled to the Father, now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Now, that's how we understand eternal life. But for first century Judeans, first century Jews, eternal life was a bit more limited. Their understanding of it was a bit more limited. That's why it's so important then, and it's so important now to understand what words mean before we start arguing about them. Specifically for them, it meant participation in God's future kingdom. I'm going to put our other verse back up here. So what the lawyer was asking was, Teacher, how do I know that I'm going to be a part of God's future kingdom? Now, though he was testing Jesus, the lawyer was partly sincere. Because the law and the prophets were a little fuzzy in the Hebrew Bible on the details about the world to come. It's really interesting. The Old Testament talks very little about the world to come, about what happens after you die. So he was asking that question, but Jesus knew that this was a test. And he understood that there was... There was more to the question than just that little question. So, completely on brand with the way Jesus handled things, Jesus answered the question with a question. That's a Jewish thing. What brings you here? What brings you here? How are you feeling? How are you feeling? Okay? So Jesus answers the question with a question. He says, all right, what is written in the law? How do I inherit eternal life? Well, so you tell me what is written in the law. How do you read it? In other words, Jesus said, you're a lawyer. How do you understand what the law says? And to this, the lawyer responded, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength 
and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Let me explain how the lawyer came up with this answer. In response to Jesus' question, the lawyer recited the summary of the law that all Jews are taught from childhood. It is called the Vahavta. And it's the Vahavta that purports to assure that a person would indeed have his place in the future kingdom. And it's a phrase that immediately follows the prayer we call the Shema, or the call, that comes to us from Deuteronomy 6. Deuteronomy 6.5 says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength. That's the Vahavta. And to that, the lawyer added a little something else, and this is important. Earlier, in an earlier discussion, someone asked Jesus a very similar question. A teacher asked Jesus which commandment was the most important, to which Jesus responded. And you might know this if you've been to church a little bit in Mark chapter 12. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and with all your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. All right, so we're going back to Luke. So the lawyer recited that. That's what the lawyer just said. He just recited what he already knew and what Jesus had already told another crowd. That's the answer he gave to the question Jesus asked him. And he included in it <clears throat> something that we know from Leviticus. <clears throat> in Leviticus 19, that's where we get the love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, so Deuteronomy, we get the Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, all your soul, all your mind, and your strength. Leviticus, still in the Torah, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, it's interesting when Jesus added the love your neighbor as yourself to what had been the standard formulaic answer for first century Judeans, the Shema and the Vahavta, it caused quite a stir. But Jesus added the love your neighbor as yourself because he was making a point. And it's here that Luke wants, us, wants to lean into us and say, and this, if you're not paying attention, this is the point, okay? Love for God is demonstrated by love for others. When you pull back and look at Jesus' entire ministry, that was its point. That's why this is good news. That's why the reign and rule of God is not something to be resisted. Love for God is demonstrated by your love for God's children, by your love for others. We can surmise then by the fact that the lawyer answered this way, that the lawyer probably was there when he heard Jesus add on the love your neighbor as yourself. So he included it in his answer to Jesus as if to let Jesus know, huh, I've been following you around a little bit, Rabbi. I know who you are. I've been listening. So we go back to Luke 10. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, the lawyer's answers seemed to please Jesus, at least a little bit, because here's what Jesus said when he heard the answer. He says this in verse 28. He says, you have answered correctly. Good job. That's the right answer. Which had to make the lawyer feel pretty good about himself for about a millisecond. And then Jesus continued, do this and you will live. And to that the lawyer had to go, Ugh, what does that mean? What did Jesus mean by this? Do this. Do what? And I will live. Now, understand this. The lawyer was not wondering 
what Jesus meant by the first part, love the Lord your God. Why wasn't he wondering about that? Because there's no way to measure that. Either you love God in your heart or you don't. There's, there's just no more precise answer to that part. So do this had to be referring to the second part, the love your neighbor as yourself part. So in an effort to make sure that the rabbi Jesus agreed that the lawyer would indeed have a place in God's future kingdom, the lawyer asked a follow-up question. Do this and you will live. The lawyer asked a follow-up question, but he, the lawyer, wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, all right, who is my neighbor? That's how they teach us to ask questions in, in lawyer world, that you, you hear an answer and then you start interrogating the answer. Who, what, why, where, when, how, okay? So he says, who? He picks a who. Who is my neighbor? See, the lawyer's question was an attempt, you see it right there, to justify himself. What the lawyer was really asking was this. What is the minimum amount of neighbor loving required to reserve me a spot in God's future kingdom? That's what he's trying to figure out. Show me the law. Show me the line here. What's the, what's the minimum participation you need from me so I can be a part of God's future kingdom? Now, to understand this, we need a little more information. So, the world of the first century Jew was very ethnocentric. It was centered around people of the same ethnicity as them. Ethnos just means nations. So people, all the Jews were centered around all the Jews. So for the first century, the Jews, to them, a neighbor was another Jew. That's all it meant. It was nobody else. And that stood to reason, because the Jews were an oppressed people. They were a persecuted people. So naturally, they did not consider their oppressors to be their neighbors. And they, they held that nobody outside of their own tribe, outside of their own ethnicity, could be trusted at all. And by the way, let me point out at this point, when I say ethnicity, I am not saying race. Okay, I'm not talking about the color of their skin. If you go back and do your research, Jews had all different kinds of colors of skin. The tribes of Israel are scattered all over the world. There are tribes of Israel located in Africa and in Asia and throughout the Middle East and throughout what became Europe. I mean, they're not talking about Jewish people. Every shade, every color, every type of Jewish people. They're talking about Jews and they're thinking that Jews are their only neighbors. So the lawyer's question was specifically, okay, which subset of my Judean brothers and sisters do I have to love? Specifically, which people do I have to love? And he was hoping by asking that question that he'd already met the requirement. But then, completely on brand again, Jesus didn't answer the question he was asked. Jesus instead answered the question that the lawyer should have asked which wasn't, who is my neighbor? It was, what does neighbor love look like? And what does neighbor love act like? And then Jesus led the lawyer and the crowd around him into quite possibly the most disruptive, culturally insensitive, disorienting, paradigm-shifting parable of all of his ministry. Jesus led them into a parable And it's a parable that whether you're part of the church or not, you probably already have heard this parable. 
but it's the meaning behind the parable that has the real power to change your life, the real life-changing power. And Jesus told the parable to show the lawyer and to show the crowd and to show us what it looks like to follow him and what his Father in heaven is like. So here's what Jesus began. Here's part of the answer. Luke 10.30. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. Now, one has to imagine that this introduction was a real head-scratcher to the crowd. They're thinking, we were talking about neighbors. Why are we now talking about robbers? Hmm... Jesus had their attention. They all knew the context, by the way. Anyone who'd ever made that 17-mile journey from Jerusalem to Jericho knew the route. It was a rocky desert. There were caves along the way. There were dangerous animals along the way. It was a route that was fraught with peril and danger. So continuing on, the man was attacked by robbers Everyone within earshot could relate. They'd all done the walk. They all knew what it was like. Some of them might have even been victims of such an attack themselves. Jesus continued. They stripped the man of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now, I've read this for a long time. It's always struck me as really weird that the robbers came along and stripped the guy naked. You don't see that often in the news, do you? Robbery in New York City, you know, lady, 74 years old, stripped naked, and you don't see that. I always thought it was weird that they take a man's clothes, but just a little bit of research indicates clothes were a valuable commodity back then. It's not like today we throw clothes away, we give away bags and bags of clothes. Clothes were very valuable back then, so that makes sense. If you're going to rob somebody, you're going to take what they have of value, and their clothes are valuable. So they roughed him up, And they left him lying there. And the audience was right there with Jesus. And they anticipated what what would happen next in the story. So here's what they're thinking. The sun's going to go down and the poor guy is just going to die. He's going to die of exposure because he gets cold in the desert at night. He's going to die of an animal attack. Both ways, horrible ways to die. But the world was a dangerous place. And stuff like that happened all the time. So that's where they thought this story was going. And before we continue, I want to pause here and remind ourselves of one thing. This story is a parable. None of this actually happened. Okay? It's a parable. A parable is a made-up story to convey a lesson. And this is a story that Jesus made up to convey a lesson, to make a point. All right? So just remember that as we go along. Jesus continues. And we have to imagine that by this time, everybody's sort of hanging on every one of Jesus' words. And some are possibly thinking, is this guy ever going to get to the point? Is he ever going to answer the question about neighbors that the lawyer asked in the first place? I mean, they've got to be tapping their you know, drumming their fingers and tapping their feet. All right, let's go. Let's go answer the question. And Jesus says this. So, he starts, it sounds like he starts off with a bad joke. A priest, a rabbi, and a minister are walking down the street. No, so a priest happened to be going down the road. The same road, when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. He crossed the street and walked by, whistling like he didn't see the guy. A priest coming from the temple in Jerusalem, that's the implication, fresh off of having worshipped at that temple in Jerusalem, offered sacrifices and all that stuff, fresh off of getting himself right with God, this priest happened upon the beaten man, and upon seeing the beaten man, he looked the other way, and he crossed the street, so he didn't have to deal with him. 
Maybe the priest, if there was a priest, would have been thinking, <laughs> what a dummy. Walking out here all alone. What did you expect was going to happen? Of course you were going to be beaten and robbed. Serves your right. And then, in the story, another religious man happens along. Verse 32, so too a Levite. When he came to the place and saw the beaten man, he passed by on the other side of the road. The Levite didn't bother to help the guy out either. And even though it was against Jewish law to kill a man, the law was silent about leaving a man out to die. So that's what these two guys did. Is they thought, you know what? This guy deserves it. He took his own problems into his own hands. He made his own mistakes. Now he's got to pay for them. Now at this point, the audience is hooked. Perhaps they're thinking, if Jesus' recitation of the greatest commands was right, love God with all your heart, with all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, love your neighbor as yourself, those two religious guys are in big trouble. They'd fail to love their Judean neighbor, which meant that they'd fail to love the Lord their God, and they failed to do so even though they were just coming from Jerusalem. They were just coming from God's holy city, and they failed to love God. That's what they were thinking. They were thinking, this must be the point of the story. So having set the stage, Jesus continued. But a Samaritan. Now, we can surmise here that this was the first instance in history, where a crowd was triggered, okay? This triggered the crowd. A murmur went through the crowd at this point. Ah, of course. It was a Samaritan. That rotten Samaritan must have been the one who robbed the guy in the first place. Figures, you can't trust those people. As you might have heard, Jews hated Samaritans. The Jews had been in an ongoing feud with the Samaritans since the time they returned from the Babylonian captivity. You see, let me explain this. The Samaritans were, were the descendants of Jews, okay? They were the descendants of the Jews who stayed behind in Judea when the Babylonians carried off most of the nation into exile. About 600 years before this moment. And the Jews who remained, they were either elderly Jews or infirmed and sick Jews, or they were the people who stayed back to take care of the elderly and the infirmed. But those people stayed back and they began to intermarry with the people whom the Babylonians had brought into Judea to replace the Jews. The Babylonians took them out, sent other nations in, other peoples in. Those people propagated, married, had families with the Jews that they'd taken into captivity. And so, 70 years later, when the Jews returned from exile, when those Samaritans, those half-Jewish, half-Gentile people, offered to help the returning Jews with the rebuilding of their temple, because they were no longer full-blooded Jews, the returning Jews slandered them. They called them half-breeds. They called them mongrels, and they rejected their assistance. So that's who the Samaritans were. They were Jewish people who bred had babies with Gentile people, and formed this race of hybrid people, so to speak. Now, the Samaritans took the hint, and they got out of Jerusalem, and they went up a little bit north to a place we now know of as Samaria, to Jericho, and they built their own temple there. So by Jesus' day, the hatred between the Jews and the Samaritans had been stewing for 600 plus years. 
There was no going back. There was no one more hated than a Samaritan. It's interesting, actually, if you're looking for just how badly the Jews hated the Samaritans. If you go back just a couple of days in this story, James and John had asked Jesus if, if, if he wanted them to go back and burn the Samaritan city to a crisp. Did you know that? Do you know James and John said, hey, Jesus, you want us to kill all these Samaritans for you? Do you remember he said that? I'm going to show it to you. Luke 9, 54. James and John asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven and destroy them? God, you hate those people too, right? I mean, you want us to just take care of them for you, huh? But what did Jesus do? He turned and rebuked them. You can imagine whatever words you want to imagine. If Jesus said to them, he was not happy, all right? So the crowd suspected that Jesus wasn't going to make the Samaritan the villain of the story. So now they're nervous. Now they're waiting with a bit of trepidation. They're going, okay, Jesus, what are you going to say next? And Jesus was about to make their nightmare come true. He was about to equate the filthy Samaritan in this story with God. In all the parables, there's always a, a character in a parable that Jesus equates with God. And in this one, it's going to be that Samaritan. So here's what he does, verse 33, Luke 10. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. Unlike the religious people, the priest, the Levite, the Samaritan did something. Indeed, Jesus had the Samaritan do many things to show compassion. Verse 34 and 35, I put them all together so we'd have them there. The Samaritan went to the beaten man, the beaten Jewish man, bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought the man to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Look after him, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you might have. Now, Jesus really made his point here. You see, in this story, the imaginary Samaritan bandaged the man's wounds. That meant that he touched him. That meant that he touched this man who was beaten. A Jew would never touch a beaten, bloody Samaritan. You would become ritually unpure. So he touched him. And then, the, and then the Samaritan used his own oil and his own wine to clean and disaffect the man's wounds. Oil and wine are expensive, were expensive. That means it cost the Samaritan. And then he took, then he took the Jew and he put him on his donkey which meant that he went way above and beyond. He went way out of his way for this Judean man who was beaten. And then the Samaritan took the man to an inn and took care of him. And then the next morning, he didn't just leave the guy there. He paid the innkeeper an amount equal to two weeks' wages just to care for the Jew, his supposedly sworn enemy. You have to imagine that the people in the crowd hearing this were doing the math in their head. Wait a minute, two denarii, that's two weeks. A, a Samaritan would never do anything like this. They, they had to be incredulous. And then the Samaritan even promised to return, check up on the man's well-being. And the people are thinking, Jesus, are you kidding? This story is ridiculous, it's outrageous. And by the way, what does it have to do with neighbors? So Jesus had just told a made-up story that he couldn't have expected anybody to believe. Most of the Jews would have stopped listening entirely the moment 
that Jesus said the Samaritan touched the Jewish man. Most people go, that's it. I'm, I'm done with this story. You know, when you're scrolling along and you're reading an article or something and you get to a certain point, and you go, um, you know what? Scroll. I'm not reading this stupid story anymore. These people are crazy, right? That's what they must have been thinking. And the lawyer was standing there. He must have been just profoundly confused. But what Jesus did next, a thing that his immediate audience wouldn't live long enough to appreciate, what Jesus did next was remarkable. Because Jesus redefined neighbor for everyone in every generation and in every nation. Neighbor would no longer be about ethnicity and proximity. Neighbor would not just be the people just like you who are close by to you. Jesus expanded the idea of neighbor beyond people we know and people we don't. And this is how we can know that was writing the truth. Nobody ever would or even could make a story like this up. Nobody would think of this back then. It just wouldn't happen. And then after delivering his outrageous, paradigm-busting, most improbable story of a good Samaritan, as if that could ever be possible, then Jesus asked them a question that will force us to examine our hearts and examine our prejudices and examine our contempt for people who don't look like us, live like us, believe like us, act like us, worship like us, or even vote like us. For people who are nothing like us, who don't even like us. So after Jesus finished the parable, Jesus looked at the lawyer and he said, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? Now, the implications of Jesus' question went way beyond the parable. Which of these three people loved God? Which of these three people loved God with all their heart and all their soul and all their mind and all their strength by loving a stranger as himself? And the lawyer who was surrounded by his kinsmen, by his fellow Jews, couldn't even bring himself to answer the question directly. This made him feel really uncomfortable, really triggered. Because here's what he said. The expert in the law, the lawyer replied, the one who had mercy on him. He couldn't even say the word Samaritan. He didn't even say it. He just described him. All he could say was the one who had mercy on him. The one who saw something that they could do for somebody, and they did it. And Jesus looked at him, and I'm going to guess here he smiled, and he said, yeah, you got it. Now, go and do likewise. Do you want to participate in the kingdom of God on earth? Do you want to live your life in tune with God's work in the world? Then do that then go do that. When you see a need, meet the need. When there's something you know you can do for somebody, do it. Because when you do, you'll be loving your neighbor, just like the Samaritan in the parable. And with that, all of a sudden, neighbor love had no boundaries. Just like God's unbounded, unconditional love for us. Nobody thought this way. Nobody lived this way. Nobody could even imagine a community, let alone a world like that. But Luke was there, 
And he knew that he had to tell the story. It was a story for everyone in every generation because everyone who hears it knows that. If we can live like that, it would change things. It would change everything. So which one of the three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hand of the robbers? If you want to see God's kingdom come, if you want to see God's will be done, if you are a Jesus follower, not just a Jesus acknowledger, not just a Jesus student, if you are a Jesus follower, what are you going to do about it? Believing is good. It's vital. It's necessary. It's a, it's a first step. Praying is good. It's important. It's valuable. God calls us to do it. But Jesus hasn't called us to just be believers or prayers. Jesus has called us to be doers. <clears throat> Jesus works in our world through doers. If you're just going to walk by a wounded man and pray that somebody will come and help him, that is not loving the Lord your God. Do you want to see change? You want to see change in our community, in our world? In our media, in our politics, in the way we deal with one another, it's really easy. Jesus gave us the formula. And he wrapped it up in that overwhelming little question. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? When you see something that needs to be done, do it. When there's a need you think you can meet, meet it. And if you get in a little bit over your head... And suddenly you find yourself praying sincerely, earnestly, like never before. Guess what's going to happen? Your faith will come to life like never before. That's the life that Jesus invites us into. Do you want that kind of faith life for yourself and for your family and for the people you love? If you do, then go and do likewise. Do you know who it's virtually impossible to not like? Do you know who it's virtually impossible to not want to be like? Do you know whose influence it's virtually impossible to resist? Well, let's be those people. Let's be that person. Let's be that Samaritan. And let's change the world for Jesus. Amen? Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for Luke and his faithful recollection and recording of, of this very important story. Thank you for changing the paradigm of the world, for showing us that our Heavenly Father, the one who created us, the one who sustains us, the one who forgave us, is there for us and wants us to be there for his other children those others made in his own image. So God, allow us to remember this and apply it in our lives and remember that it's but for your grace that we're here. God, we thank you for all that you do. We thank you for loving us even though we don't deserve it. We thank you for saving us. We love you, God. We praise you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. That's where we'll pick up next week. Have a great afternoon and we'll see you later.